Let's uh, go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer to start our time. God, thank you for this morning that we can come here together and to be in fellowship with one another and with you. Thank you that we get to come and study your word, and we pray that you'd give us understanding and insight into uh, what you want us to do in our lives, and that you would help us to be concerned to please you at every moment, to be willing to do what you've said. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, bringing your word to us, and we ask that this might be a profitable time, that your church might be built up, and that Jesus Christ might be glorified. We pray in his name. Amen. All right, well, this morning we want to continue our uh, study on decision-making, knowing and doing God's will. Uh, we started off the last couple of weeks by looking at what it is that actually is referred to as God's will in the scriptures. What do we talk about when we mean the will of God or what God wants? Uh, if you recall, there are two dimensions, if you will, of God's will that the Bible talks about. Although not necessarily in those direct in these direct terms or in this direct terminology, uh, namely God's sovereign will or His will of decree, which is that God is absolutely in charge of everything that happens and that nothing comes to pass outside of what He ordains and what He ultimately uh, intends to happen. And then there is within that His moral will or His will of uh, His will of precept, His requirements or what he states that he wants or commands for people to do and sometimes even more specifically things that refer to what he wants his redeemed people to do. So you have those two dimensions of God's will. You have his sovereign will which always will take place even if they are things that don't necessarily please him. He's not happy about people doing them in that sense. And then there is his uh, will that he tells us to do that we are supposed to obey at every point. So those are the two dimensions that the Bible talks about. Uh, we also looked at the fact that sometimes people want to add um, a third will, which would be an individual will of God's plan for their lives. And uh, that's something that is sort of vaguely unrevealed or hinted at or supposed to be found in some way or another, um, either so that we will uh, not miss out on God's best for us in our life in some way, or that we might make sure that we do what he quote unquote wants us to do. And if we don't find that will in some way or another on various decisions that we make, then we are in some way uh, either missing out or doing something wrong. And um, I tried to make the point last week that there is not such a third will of God and that we should not be seeking it, that we should be content to um, understand that all things that happen are God's plan for our lives and that it's our responsibility to do the things that please him and that there is nothing beyond what he has already revealed in his word for us uh, that we are supposed to find and to seek out and follow. Now, as we'll see in uh, a couple of weeks, this does not prevent us from trying to learn and to grow, not only in our knowledge of the scriptures, but also in uh, understanding the world around us, in growing in wisdom in particular. This doesn't mean that we uh, never understand anything outside of the Bible. This doesn't mean uh, any of that. This is not meant to be an oversimplification, but the point is that there is not something out there that's hiding, waiting for you to find it outside the Bible that God insists upon you doing or that you will miss out on if you don't find it in some way. Uh, this morning, what I'd like to do is to address like a few common methods of decision-making that can um, masquerade as biblical ways to make decisions. And these are some of the most common ways that I think people try to make decisions because they, they think that this is the way that God intends for them to do it and to understand how to get at what God wants. Um, so I just want to talk about three of these most common and then any others that may come to mind if we have some time at the end. Um, and again, these are things that are not so much common ways that people make decisions um, in general. And we could, talk about, um, we could talk about just, you know, doing it based upon our tradition. We could talk about making decisions based upon, you know, what, our, what we were taught by our families or, you know, what the world around us does or what we do as, you know, citizens of East Tennessee or whatever it might be. Um, I'm not so much talking about those, but talking about things that are uh, supposed to be biblical, that use biblical terminology 
and yet may not actually be about decision making in the exact way that sometimes they're used. So I want to walk through those and uh, study what I would say is the top three and then we can go from there. All right, so what we're going to do, you have these on your handout. Uh, we will start number one with the leading of the Spirit. The leading of the Spirit. Um, when people talk about being led by the Spirit, what are they often referring to? When they're talking about being led by the Spirit, and in particular, um, being led by the Spirit in ways that are not necessarily shown in the Scriptures, um, and information or, or being told or led to do things that are not directly stated in the Bible. What kind of things are they talking about? And how does that, how do they uh, say that they're being led? Feelings, okay. Feelings. Circumstances, all right. What else? Yeah, Andrew. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, like God God told them something somehow. Mhm. Okay. What else? Maybe just a, a strong urge of some kind, a strong desire of some kind, uh kind of a just a general, you know, an impression. I just, you know, I just feel like I should. I just I just really feel bound like the spirit wants me to do this. Um, the phrase being led by the Spirit is often connected with these kinds of urges, feelings, impressions, um, and so on. And the phrase comes from two particular places in the New Testament. Does anyone know what those are? Where would you find the... Yes, Jeff. Okay, so that's actually, yeah, that would be another one that, um, that I was not thinking of at the moment, but you're right. When Jesus uh, had been baptized and the Spirit of God had come upon him um, as really kind of just initiating his formal ministry as the Messiah, uh, the Spirit of God drove him, or I think in one of the Gospels it even says threw him out into the wilderness. But yes, Matthew 4.1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay, so that's about Jesus, and um, so that's not exactly what I was thinking of, but that's a great passage too. Uh, what else, as far as believers being led by the Spirit? Yeah, Kyle. Yep, yep, it's true. So the, they, uh, they were going through in Acts 16, they're going through, F, uh, through Asia Minor, and they're trying to go here and trying to go here, and he says the Spirit wouldn't allow us, or the Spirit prevented us. Yeah, yeah, that's a great example too. Yep. What about this, the direct language? I'm, I'm thinking a couple of places, um, and I'll just kind of show you these. First of all, Romans 8, Romans 8, and verse 14 directly uses this phrase of being led by the Spirit of God. So if you want to look there for a moment, and then we'll go over to Galatians 5 in a moment as well. So Romans 8.14 says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, you'll notice here that there, there is no definition given of what this involves, right? There is no uh, statement here of what this being led by the Spirit means in the direct sense. So we have to bring our understanding in one sense of what that even means to be led by the Spirit um, based upon other factors than this verse actually coming out and saying, being led by the Spirit equals this or that. Now, in this particular context, Romans chapter 8 has begun to speak about the work of the Spirit of God in the life of a Christian. And what he's saying is that the, uh, the Spirit of God enables you to live and to actually uh, have godliness in a way that living apart from the Spirit does not. So Paul is in a dilemma in Romans 7, uh, second half of the chapter. I have these intentions. I would like to do what I can't do, and I would like to not do what I am doing, and I'm a prisoner. Um, who's going to set me free from the body of this death? Verse 24 
Um, verse 25, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. What am I going to do about it? Well, guess what? That's not the whole picture. For a Christian, we have the Spirit of God. Therefore, verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, again, I've mentioned this before at various points, I think, but um, this is not simply a verse about our guilt before God. This is very often uh, just taken out of context um, by people with very sound theology in many ways to look at Romans 8.1 and say, no, look, now we're not guilty before God anymore. And that's connected with what's here. But what does he say? Why is there now no condemnation? Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What is the law of sin and death? Well, it is the law that he's just been talking about for the last uh, chapter of chapter 7 to which he has been enslaved because of sin. And Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the law of sin and death. Well, guess what? The Spirit of God enables you to not be unable to do what God has said. Now, if you have the Spirit of God, you can actually do what God says. So verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us or by us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see here, the idea is that you are able to do what God says. Um, this requirement of the law language, just to, if you need another sort of piece of context to fill that out, in Romans 2.29, excuse me, um, Romans 2, right at the end of the chapter, yes, 26, if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? It's kind of the idea of the essence of the law or the heart of the law. Like if you're doing what the law sets forth that you're supposed to do. And so here what he's saying in Romans 8, 4 is that a person who has the spirit of God is now able to do God's commandments. We who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Then in Romans 8, Back there, verses 5 through 8, he shows why people who, are, who don't have the Spirit, who are according to the flesh, can't do what God says. Uh, those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So that's the state of those who are in the flesh apart from the Spirit. But look at this. If you're a Christian, look at what the case is for you. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. So here now you have this, even though in one sense your human physical makeup is the same as it was apart from Christ, something has changed in the inner man. And now you can do what God has said. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What is the nature of the discussion then in these preceding verses, verses 1 through 13? about the Spirit's work in a believer's life. What is the main thing in Paul's view here? Okay, yeah, the ability to do what God says, which you didn't have before. This is basically a moral type of work that the Spirit of God is doing. There is absolutely nothing here about additional information coming by means of the spirit so if we arrive at verse 14 and all of a sudden we decide 
being led by the Spirit refers to information, um, direction in matters that are not necessarily moral. And all of a sudden we start to take this to be about guidance, extra biblical guidance, uh, guidance that goes beyond separating right from wrong, guidance that goes beyond pulling us toward righteousness and then further into, well, you need to do this in this specific way and make this choice and make this decision. If we start to say that that phrase is about that, then we have inserted something that is completely foreign to what Paul is talking about for this whole chapter. To be led by the Spirit of God is not about being directed in the sense of being told or nudged where to go, other than to say that the Spirit leads us to righteousness, toward righteousness and away from sin. Um, There is another passage that uses this phrase, and the idea is similar in Galatians 5, verse 18. And the context is completely about the same subject. Galatians 5, if you want to turn there, uh, starting in verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. So, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Again, nothing here about any kind of direction other than fighting against the flesh, doing the opposite of what the flesh wants. And then he even specifies further in verse 19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, and he lists all these sins, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, but when the Spirit leads you, what happens? Do you know more about what God wants you to do? Do you have further insight into the decisions that you need to make? Well, in a sense, but only, as it says here, in the moral sense. Verse 22, what does the Spirit produce? The fruit of the Spirit In other words, if you are being led by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So what you have here then with regard to these particular passages that are referring to all believers, you have the leading of the Spirit referring to leading away from ungodliness and toward righteousness. Um, questions on this so far I want to keep talking about this subject and address some of the other texts but as far as that goes questions or comments on that particular issue and those couple of texts on just the direct things about being led by the spirit all believers yes Steve mm-hmm Yeah, so, so that's, uh, there's a couple of steps in that. How do you explain to someone that, you know, what is actually going on when in these other passages where it sounds like the Spirit is speaking? Well, first of all, uh, and, that's, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that's actually where I want to go next, which is uh, in places such as the passage that Kyle mentioned. You know, in Acts, there are several places where the Spirit of God speaks to people, very much speaks to people. So Acts 13 would be a good place to go um, if you want to look there. Acts 13 Starting in verse 1. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. When they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And then verse 4, even Luke 
narrative, his commentary on this is they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. Like he affirms this is not, they're not getting this wrong. They're not misunderstanding this. Um, Some key points here to notice. First of all, he did, the Holy Spirit actually spoke very discernible, clear words that could be quoted and written down on the page. This was not someone saying, you know, I think the Spirit is telling me to, and then they paraphrased it. Very often this is the way that people interpret the leading of the Spirit. They get a a kind of a general idea about what God is telling them to do, and they might articulate it, but it's not as if they're saying, you know, the Spirit told me, quote, this set of words, end quote. But here, that's what's going on. He was telling them specific things, specific words that could be quoted and related and set down on the page. So that's one particular matter with that. Um, Also, who was there in the church, which was at Antioch, according to verse 1? What kind of people? Prophets and teachers. Prophets and teachers. Okay, so when we get the scripture... And the scripture was written down and it was written by prophets according to 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, Who was it that was making sure that message was exactly what was given? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one. Um, God has revealed over the course of biblical history and redemptive history, he has very much spoken by his spirit, but he's done so to particular people. And the people that get that message, largely speaking, there are some some various exceptions or some other, you know, direct speech that's recorded on certain instances. But the people that are the ones who are God's recipients of that message to pass along are who? The prophets. The prophets are the one who receive that. So this this is not a vague notion being given to, you know, just a random person and that person saying, you know, I think the Spirit wants me to go to to the Gentiles. Uh, This is the Spirit of God actually speaking through one or more prophets who are here, revealing this actual content, objective content in the speech. And this was truly, indeed, the Spirit of God speaking. So uh, as we think about the Spirit leading, no one should say that the Spirit of God has not spoken throughout the course of redemptive history. And much of what's gone on in the Bible, much of what is, well, in one sense, ultimately everything that's gone on in the Bible. But even in some of these instances, um, the Spirit of God is actually telling people directly what to do. Um, You you have another instance of this over in uh, Acts 20, in Acts chapter 20, um, there is a prophet, actually, it may be 21, forgive me. Yeah, 21, verse 10. Acts 21, verse 10. You have a man named Agabus. It says, as we were staying there for some days... A prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, notice this, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Verse 12, when we had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. So why are you going to go up there? And yet, this is what he did. He said in verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. So what you have here is... um, Agabus coming, he is a prophet, he speaks and he says this formula, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Does that phrase sound roughly familiar to anyone? What is that analogous to elsewhere in the Bible? 
What phrase does that sound like? Common biblical phrase. Thus saith the Lord. That's right. Thus says the Lord. It's just in different order. And instead of saying this is what he says, it's thus saith. But it is the same construction, the same underlying grammatical construction. Except here, instead of saying thus says the Lord, he's just saying thus says the Holy Spirit. Which, of course, is no problem for us from a Trinitarian perspective because the Holy Spirit is fully God just as much as, uh, just as, much as God the Father or God the Son. So what you have here is a divine prophetic pronouncement. He is saying authoritatively, thus says God the Holy Spirit. This was a binding word from God. This was authoritative and true. Now, unfortunately, some people today, in trying to reduce the authority and the certainty of prophetic statements, will try to find errors in this prophecy that Agabus made. And they will actually try to argue that the details of what happened didn't come to pass exactly as Agabus predicted. And in doing so, they undermine this clear statement that he was a prophet and that he spoke directly what the Holy Spirit said. But that's a necessary uh, compromise in order to get to the kind of way that prophecy or the speaking of the Spirit is used in many places today where it's kind of just a general thing. It can be misunderstood by the one receiving the message um, and it's not necessarily authoritative. It's just helpful. You know, it's just ideal, but it's, it's not the same level as Scripture. Well, this is the kind of statement that puts it on the same level as Scripture. The Holy Spirit says this. This is, thus says the Lord or thus says the Holy Spirit. Um, you also have then, of course, the Apostle Paul, um, Acts 16, as mentioned earlier. Um, for example, in yeah, Acts 16, um, verse 6, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Verse 7, after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Um, we don't know exactly the mechanism that was used in order for this to take place. We do know that Paul, uh, as an apostle, had the gift of prophecy. We also know that he was with, um, he was with Barnabas uh, at this point. Uh, no, forgive me, he's with Silas at this point, who I believe also was said to be a prophet. But regardless, you have someone who actually is an apostle of the Lord, and so he, he has this gift of prophecy. God reveals things to him. So yeah, it's no problem here that the Spirit of God would communicate to him in some way and tell him to do this or not to do that. The problem is when we start to kind of insert our own uh, assumptions about the way in which that took place. We don't know how that happened. So we can't make, um, we can't make a line from the Spirit of God redirected an apostle in Acts 16 we can't make a direct line from there to, well, I felt like I should go do this and that must be the Spirit of God wanting me to do it because it's not against the Bible and it's a pretty good thing. That's not a connection that we can make. We just don't have the certainty to do that. So yeah, in all these places, there, there are various things that come up and I, I know that there are, there are many places that like, we can't get to every single one of those things, but these are the kinds of things when you see the phrase of being led by the Spirit or the Spirit speaking in Scripture, stop and think, who is he speaking to? Um, what assumptions am I bringing to this text about what that looked like and how the Spirit actually made those words known to that person? Um, just make sure that you're not letting your own assumptions about what that looks like based upon cultural stuff um, be inserted into the text. And instead, make sure you're drawing out of the text and uh, only stating with certainty what's actually there. Uh, as we talked about last time, I understand why we would want something like this, um, because we want, you know, if, I mean, if we have, if we're Christians, we have the Spirit of God, and we want to be led by the Spirit, and we want at every moment the Spirit of God to be directing us where we ought to be going. The question is just, how is that actually, how does that take place, and what is the scope of it? Um, does he actually communicate to us information or urges or something like that in order to do this? Um, or is it that we have maybe mistaken the nature of the Spirit's work um, and confused it with some other things? Um, one in particular 
is that we have confused and mingled the Holy Spirit with feelings. We just assume that our feelings that take place as Christians, as long as they're godly, must be or at least could be the Spirit. And uh, the important point to note there is, first of all, that the Scripture never does equate the two. The Spirit is not the same thing as a feeling. The work of the Spirit is not the same thing as a feeling. So that if you are not uh, if you're not feeling emotions in a particular setting, that's not the same thing as the absence of the Spirit. If you're feeling emotions in a particular setting, that's not the same thing as the work of the Spirit. And when it comes to emotions in the Spirit of God, um, apart from some supernatural instances where, for example, uh, King Saul was taking control of, the Spirit of God came upon him and threw him down and made him prophesy all night. Just hilarious the way that this is used multiple times to, uh, one, to keep Saul from being able to go chase down David. Um, anyway, he, the, the Spirit of God sometimes will override in those certain miraculous settings in, in the Scripture. But when it comes to the, the work of the Spirit and how that gets from His work in us to feelings, it's not a direct work. It is indirect the Spirit of God works as we work by faith in the Scriptures. Our hearts are changed, and that produces the kind of character and the kind of thinking that produces godly emotions and godly feelings. So that we don't just, you know, he doesn't bypass our minds in bringing about certain things in us, but he works through our mind by the transforming of our mind, Romans 12, as we walk by faith, and then that produces in us this different way of thinking and feeling about things. So it's a real mistake to go and to take feelings as the Spirit of God is giving me this feeling. And that is the indication that I should follow after whatever that feeling might actually be. Um, all of our feelings are produced by virtue of the, of the Spirit of God working through our minds and our faith. And it all flows out of that. Um, so I think that confusion of the spirit with our feelings is a big, big reason why we might think that when we feel these things that it is the spirit working and we need to be careful to actually um, try to make a case biblically for that before we would make that assertion or have that belief. So that's the spirit uh, leading. Certainly I'm sure there's more we could say on that, but uh, questions at this point or questions, comments, yes. Uh, basically, yes, if you're going to say, yeah, if you're saying the Spirit's telling me something, then it ought to be that. Mm -hmm. Gotcha, yeah, so if, you're, if we were going to test and see, so... Uh, that, so that would be the, the second part of the equation, I think, that maybe Steve was asking about it at first. So one is like, what is actually, what is it for the Spirit to speak? And then the second part would be making the case as to whether he still does that today, which would be wrapped up in, are there apostles, are there prophets, and so on, um, which is not a case that I'm necessarily going to try to make today. But I would argue that the Scripture lays it out as this was for a particular foundational time, Acts, uh, Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, uh, through whom, Ephesians 3.5, the truth of Christ was revealed to, uh, in particular, the, the apostles and prophets at that time. So Ephesians 2.20 and 3.5 are in there. Um, if you want to also look, I would try to make the case from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where it talks about um, the, the message was spoken to the Lord, and then it was confirmed by those who heard, and that that's kind of, that's where the message of the gospel came, and that there would not be any expectation uh, that there would be anything beyond the pages of Scripture. Um, if it were to come, it would have to be on the level of authority of Scripture because God speaks clearly and God is able to communicate clearly and we would not expect him to um, all of a sudden change the nature of that. 
again, that's what I mentioned earlier, is kind of part of what people will do. That, you know, it, I think it's, I think many people who would say that God continues to speak would argue that um, it's not the exact same nature as scripture or the same authority or the same clarity. And so you have to sort of modify that and say, well, it's prophecy, but it's not, like it's not the same as Old Testament prophecy. And again, I could work you through an entire case as to how that just simply can't be there. Um, starting with the book of Acts where the words are used interchangeable for New Testament prophets and Old Testament prophets. But nonetheless, yeah, that would be the other part of that is just to establish, okay, has God actually finished speaking for now in that sense of prophetically um, and of giving revelation of that sense? And, and I would argue, uh, yes, that he has done that uh, until the time of the tribulation, at least when the two prophets of Revelation 11 are there. So... Yeah, again, probably more than I would go into, I think, it, but there are, uh, I could, you know, come back to revisit that another time, or we could, uh, there, there are some works that have been written on that that are helpful, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good, good question. What else? Yes, Anna. That's basically it, yeah, that we would know, we, instead of trying to find out what his providential will is, that we would try to align all of our decisions with what scripture says. Uh, that's, that's most of it. So the, the, the other part of that would be not just finding out what his providential will is, but also that he has a particular path that he wants us to know and be part of actually choosing actively, knowing that he wants us to go there. For example, so in other words, it's not enough to simply say, well, if we could theoretically look back on our lives at the end of our lives and know where God had led us behind the scenes, um, and if we had tried to obey all of Scripture, well, then that's all it is. Um, I'm not sure that I'm spelling that out uh, the way that I want. So it, it is more than knowing God's providential will, um, even from the point where if we could go look back in retrospect and know what God was going to do. It's also that it is the, the idea... Um, that I'm arguing against, the idea would be that um, God's providential will includes, well, in addition to his providential will, within that there are some things that go beyond morality and go beyond what is written in scripture that he intends for us to find out and to go down that particular path in order to have the best life for us in some way or to have maybe to be sanctified above and beyond what the scripture alone enables us to be. Does that make more sense? Okay, okay, so it's like, the examples would be things like, where do I move, where do I live? You know, God doesn't just want me to make wise decisions about that within the confines of what he commands and forbids in the Bible. He also uh, has this, direction for me to go here or there and it's not just that he's going to work unknown to me behind the scenes but he also wants me to find that out and to get in that right place and on that right path um, even among these many options that are there and if we miss out on that then we're going to not have you know the, the kind of life that God wants us to have in some form or another you know, and then again, that can vary all the way from material blessings to happiness to purpose to uh, even to sanctification in some senses. You know, if I don't do this, then I'm not going to be as holy as I could. Um, so it's, it's that additional element of within all of that, there's something more that God has not told me here in the Bible, and, but it can be sort of discovered um, if we just know how to listen for it, if we just really listen to God and follow his leading and so on. Does that make more sense? That? Okay. Okay. Yes, and, and part of this is uh, I would like to relieve you all from the burden of trying to find that and thinking that you have to, um, that you're going to miss out or that you have to discover this and uh, to find futility in looking for that. So, yes, leading of the Spirit. Okay, other questions about that? 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Meditating on the scriptures, it, it does. It makes you wiser in those ways where you can confront false ideas. So, yeah, when you get an impression of some kind, when you get a feeling or an urge or you have a desire, you can actually test that by scripture and see, is this in line with what God says or not? Uh, now, just to kind of hijack your point and go somewhere further with it, um, many times we might even connect, okay, I'm thinking about this thing from the scripture and I ha- or I have this urge and it's good and it aligns with the Bible so it must be the Holy Spirit telling me to do this and we need to be careful about that as well because there just because it is a good thing and it is permitted in scripture or maybe even commanded in scripture that doesn't mean that that is necessarily the exact course on which that God wants you to carry out that command or that, you are, uh, that, that it means that this is what he's directly telling you to do. Um, you know, okay, I'm thinking about Ephesians 5. Uh, husbands, love your wives, right? Husbands, love your wives. Well, uh, I'm thinking husbands, love my wife. And, man, you know, I really need to do that. I haven't been doing that the way I ought to lately. And I walk into the, uh, you know, walk into the uh, grocery store and look at this. Flowers are on sale, you know? That, this must be, I mean, this is like, this is from God, right? Because he's showing me, I have not been loving her and I need to, I need to give her some flowers. Well, is that one possible good way to love your wife? Sure it is. I mean, assuming she's not allergic to them or something or, and she actually likes them. But what about if, you know, there's a problem, what, like what, what if there's something else that she would prefer? Or if there's something else that, you know, you, you have a, a long drive, somewhere and then back and the flowers are going to die in the car by the time you get home you know does that mean like do you just go ahead and buy them because the Lord sort of showed those to you but a lot of times we take things this way this is just kind of how we do it and we connect um, one good option that is in line with the scripture as if that is the definitive way that we must carry that out and it becomes binding in our conscience at worst but it also can cause us to make some foolish decisions because it's one possible option that might not be the, the best thing at that moment. Um, so, yeah, so along those lines, um, again, just to hijack your point and uh, make another that's connected with it. As we think about the scriptures, then we're going to be able to evaluate whether things are a good or a bad idea within what God's word actually says. And this is what um, Psalm 119, when it talks about the wisdom that God's word gives... It says uh, in Psalm 98, uh, or excuse me, not Psalm 98, Psalm 119, starting in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation, Dan, to your point, my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. Uh, there's the idea here that if you know the Bible, you are equipped to make a lot of really good decisions. It doesn't mean that your decisions will be flawless, and it doesn't mean that what you decide will always be the right thing for someone else to decide in their circumstances, but you're going to have an understanding of what the truth is so that you know right from wrong, and you're going to be wise in ways where you're discerning, you have insight, you're able to make decisions that are not just uh, non-sinful, but you'll be able to start to make actually wise decisions as well that go beyond that. And again, that's what we're going to talk about is the, the path that we want to take when it comes to decision making uh, in the future, which is to pursue wisdom, to say we're not just about what is right and wrong, but within what is right, then we want to make decisions that are wise. And we want to do so increasingly uh, as we gain more and more wisdom 
from the various sources the scripture tells us that we should. Um, so yes, just all this to say, um, be careful about associating with the Spirit things that the Bible does not tell us are the Spirit's work or direction or uh, Him speaking. Just be, um, make sure that you actually are letting the text speak for itself in those ways. And again, I know that there, we didn't cover every passage here, so um, there are a lot. If you have questions about any particular passage, I'd be glad to answer that or maybe even um, find a, a helpful resource that could speak to that more extensively um, than I could. So the leading of the Spirit. Um, the other two that we're talking about here uh, will be, and we probably will um, just actually come back to these next time in full. Um, let me go ahead and give you what they are at least for this morning, and then maybe we can um, just talk about any others that come to mind. The second one is um, having a, what's the blank for? Anybody know? Having a blank about something. Feeling, that's not what I'm going for, but it's, that's good. Having a peace about something. Having a peace about something. I uh, made this decision, I wasn't sure, and then I had a peace about it. I felt a peace about it. Um, and then the third one is going to be open and closed, what? Doors, yeah, yeah, open and closed doors. You guys ever heard uh, when God closes a door, he opens, what is it, a window or opens another one? I don't really know that that's in the Bible. Um, so we should, again, be careful about things like that as well, which is, Oh, man, that's another whole point as far as just uh, taking extra biblical phrases that people use with biblical terminology. Um, we'll talk about those next week. We have a couple minutes here. Um, other questions or are there other um, common decision-making methods that are connected with biblical terminology that you're not so sure about or that you might like to think about or that you've, you would like to address uh, either individually or maybe it would be helpful for us to cover next week? Any others? Casting lots, okay. Casting lots, um, modern day equivalent or rough equivalent would be something like what? Flipping a coin or, you know. Uh, yeah, and you know, it's funnily enough, I think that in many cases that actually is not a bad method for, uh, for coming to a decision when there's no other real thing between, you know, there's nothing particularly moral or more wise about one or the other. Uh, we, can, we can flip a coin. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go to eat tonight? Well, they cost about the same. They're the same distance away. Everybody kind of likes them. We can't make up our mind. What are we going to do? Well, we'll flip a coin. Uh, the problem is, as with so many of these things, when you say, well, we flipped the coin and it landed on heads. And so we're going to this restaurant because that's what God wants us to do. That when it gets to the level of it's binding because it, this happened that way. And we need to do this, and we need to go there. And if we don't, then there might be a big problem. That's when we start to get into trouble, when we let these things bind us as if they're definitive. I mean, you can flip the coin, and then God tells you to go to this restaurant, and what, you, what happens if you're there and, and it's closed? I mean, how are you going to bang on the door because God said, you know, well, there's a closed door. Isn't that God too? What's, how do you discern between those two? And you can see where people get all kinds of tangled up and their conscience bound and troubled thinking that they're sinning against God when nothing of the sort has happened. Yeah. But uh, yeah, casting lots. Um, there were times, by the way, I'll just mention this, where things like that were actually definitive. Um, Israel would seek the will of the Lord through like the Urim and the Thummim, which is a little bit vague as to exactly how those things work, but they would find a definitive answer. What like God would communicate to them in that particular unique way among them, he would give them an answer and say, you know, go up in battle or don't go up. Don't do this or do this. Um, and he actually would respond to them in those ways at times. Now, we haven't been given that particular tool um, unless some of you have crafted something like that. I, I wouldn't assume that we have that, considering that that is an instruction for Israel itself. But there, were, there are times in the scriptures when people will do those things, and it is uh, even the, the intention of it is that God is actually responding in certain cases. But yeah, the roll of the dice, the casting of the law, the flipping of the coin, spinning of a wheel, these things... Um, unless there's some clear statement in the Bible that God actually said this or said this by means of that tool, we should not take those as if that is binding. It's just 
you know, a convenient way to decide something. Yeah, okay, anything else? Putting out a fleece? Yeah, putting out a fleece. Yeah, why did, who put out a fleece? Huh? Gideon? Yeah, Gideon, one of the guys with like the weakest faith in the whole Bible, right? Why did he put out a fleece? Because he didn't trust God. Um, because God called him to go do this and he, he like had to be convinced over and over again. God graciously accommodated him. But yeah, putting out a fleece and, you know, if, it's, if there's this thing about this, it comes back while it's dry in the morning, even though it's wet on the ground all around. Or, you know, the other way around, if it's wet, even though it's dry on the ground all the way around, then that must mean that the Lord has spoken that you really are going to protect me when I go do this. Uh, but yeah, putting out a fleece actually was not really a great indication of his faith and of walking faithfully, trusting the Lord. So that is another, yeah, another way that we do this. Yeah. Okay, well, um, it is time to be done. Again, next time we'll talk about um, having a peace and uh, opening and closing doors. Let's keep, and uh, in a moment we will open those doors and go out, but first we're going to pray. God, thank you for this time this morning. Um, we do pray that you would help us to uh, carefully understand there are so many texts on how the Spirit works in our lives and uh, how we must submit to what he says and what he has uh, what he wants for us to do. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. We want to be led by the Spirit. And um, yet you, we pray for your grace to cut through so much of our own uh, understanding and predispositions about what it would mean to do that. So we pray that you'd help us to truly be very biblical and understanding passage by passage all that we need to understand and that our view of you and of your Holy Spirit would be shaped by your word and your word alone. And we ask that you might be glorified as we consider these things and that you would help us to walk in your ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.